Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. My guest today is Cheryl Cashin, who is a professor of law, civil rights, and social justice at Georgetown, uh, where she works on issues around race relations, inequality, uh, which has been really the theme of her, her career so far. I'm a big, big fan of her work, including her previous book, uh, Loving. But today we discuss her new book, which is just out, and it's called White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and segregation in the age of inequality. And it builds on her previous work looking at how place really matters for opportunity and how space is so segregated in the US. We talk about the way in which uh, the group that she calls descendants, black Americans who are descended from enslaved uh, Americans who are disproportionately still in these low opportunity and, and high poverty spaces. And that actually is part of her theme, which is there's a specific anti-black racism that underpins a lot of public policy that we talk about, including redlining, the use of um, school districts to zone uh, other children out, uh, housing policy, et cetera. Um, and she points out that these uh, the segregation of America's cities affect politics as well as as policy. And even in cities like Baltimore, which she spends a lot of time on, where you have a lot of uh, black leaders, black leadership, it doesn't necessarily change the political geography because there's such power in the neighborhoods where the affluent and disproportionately white people live. And so she talks about how residential segregation affects politics and not least, of course, through education. Uh, we talk about some of the mechanisms through which that happens. We talk about what we might do about it, uh, including uh, housing desegregation, which can help drive school desegregation. We talk about cultural dexterity, that's her term, for predominantly white people and their ability to see what's happening around them and to navigate a multiracial society. And I do think this kind of builds on her previous work, which focuses on the importance of relationships. I think that's why she's so in favor of integration, because she sees relationships between people as really the way to, to make progress uh, in terms of, of racial justice. And I think it's probably appropriate then that we end on the, on the, the issue of love, which she does also write about, and the importance of, of love, what she calls agape love for politics and and for public policy and in order to make progress so i really enjoyed the conversation i really enjoy her work uh, and I, I hope you'll enjoy it too cheryl cashin thanks for joining me on dialogues thank you for having me richard so i've followed your work for a, a long time now and excited by uh, your new book and uh, the chance to talk about that which it, it's a very timely book for sure about race equity and how that's manufactured and sustained through space uh, and how in your terms, white spaces require black hoods, to use your language. And so this this issue that you've written a lot about of segregation, this issue generally of segregation and equity uh, has actually animated much of your work, it seems to me. And you talk a bit about your family background in the book, but could we start by just getting a sense of your own journey, where what your upbringing was like and how how you got drawn to this this sustained work you've done around race equity? Thank you so much for that question. I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, the child of civil rights activists and political activists. My father was a dentist by avocation, but an agitator. You know, oh, I switched it by vocation to the agitator by yeah. avocation, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, my mother took me when I was four months old to a sit-in uh, at a Walgreens and got herself arrested with me in her arms. I mean, Huntsville police were not like the Birmingham police. It was part of their um, planned uh, publicity stunt to get attention to the Huntsville civil rights movement. And my, you know, my, my parents and their friends, including the Unitarians, at the, <laughs> we were the only black family at a Unitarian church. Um, but, you know, they intentionally or uh, were part of a uh, biracial, black-led civil rights movement that desegregated public accommodations in Huntsville before, well before the Civil Rights Act of 64. And then they um, integrated schools. I, me and my brother were integration pioneers in schools. And we moved, this is interesting, from uh, an all-black historical neighborhood to overwhelmingly white space so that my partially deaf brother 
could access the only school in the city that has services for hearing impaired children. Right. Mm. Um, And, you know, my father, then they tried to desegregate politics. My father and others founded an independent Democratic Party when the regular Democratic Party in Alabama was dominated by George Wallace and very much committed to white supremacy and maintaining segregation. Um, he ran, he ran, they, my father ran for governor against Wallace in 1970 um, to head a ticket that had blacks and liberal rights running for all kinds of offices, particularly in the black belt of Alabama. So I grew up licking NDPA stamps and I wrote a memoir about this, but I, um, my emotional inheritance from my parents was, was this idea of agitation. Um, for them, the only life worth living was one where you spent your waking hours advocating for people who had less than you. Particularly for them, it was dirt poor black sharecroppers in the black belt of Alabama. And so I grew up with this value of, of seeing the most oppressed black people as equal to me, as, as just as talented as me, but, and, and, and capable if they are given a chance. Um, and, you know, so my, my whole academic career has been about segregation, but for whatever reason, I've always been fascinated with um, land and development patterns. And so I've been wrestling with this issue for 30 years from being a White House staffer in the Clinton administration to a law professor and academic and then, um, you know, so-called public intellectual. Uh, I just can't let it go. And it feels to me like what I figured out and, and it took me two decades to figure this out. Um, and I presented in this book, I, I argue that we have a system of caste and geography is at the center of it. Um, increasing. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. That's the way you talk about it through space. And I, but I knew a little bit of that family history, but I didn't, I didn't know all of it. And so it wasn't as if there was some moment, a turn for you towards these issues of racial justice. It was like literally, literally in your mother's milk. It was there from the beginning. And so you like, it, like right? there wasn't a moment of like, Oh, I really, you know, there wasn't a moment of recognition for you as there is, there is for many. One of the so I want to dive into some of the really fascinating parts of, of the book. I want, to, I want to start with how you define the group you're most interested in, uh, and you define them as descendants. Uh, and I'm going to quote from the book here. You, you write the following. I call the black people trapped in high poverty neighborhoods descendants in recognition of an unbroken continuum from slavery. Occasionally, I also use this honorific to describe black Americans like myself who do not live in the hood, but descend from the long legacy of slavery. I find this definition of the group in question absolutely fascinating, particularly in light of current debates about race and racism and and people of color and so on. And it feels to me like you're zeroing on a very specific kind of racism, anti-blackness, I think you call it uh, elsewhere. Um, Am I am I reading it correctly that you're trying to make a distinct case that there's a particular form of racism that is uh, sustained against particular groups, and in this case, it's black people, and it's especially the people who are, to use your language, descendants. Or to put it more in a more open way, wh- why do you spend so much time kind of defining the group when some of the trends in society are the other way? It's to make much, much more of a coalition of people of all all people of color. Okay, well. Uh, you know, I, I I wrote a book called Place Not Race that dealt with the mutual oppression of people locked out of high opportunity neighborhoods. Right. This book, I wanted to share with the reader what I came to understand. Right. The dominant experience for black Americans in terms of oppression in the 20th century is born of residential segregation, right? Um, and I make it clear in that both the, the introduction and the conclusion, I'm not saying that other groups, including 
economically struggling whites don't experience oppression. But this book was explaining um, that anti-blackness, um, hostility toward the six million, six to seven million black great migrants who left the South to escape another anti-black institution, Grim Crow, Jim Crow, that everywhere they went, the main response to them was to contain them in their own neighborhoods, you know, red line and con- cut them those neighborhoods off from all the kinds of public and private investments that build wealth and, and, and the good stuff in life that were rained down on white neighborhoods. And that the system of residential caste we live with today and everyone's ensnared in it was born of that anti-black uh, hostility. But, but my, the, I chose the word descendants because I, I thought that it helped to underscore the, the, the connection. Each time this country seemed to have put to bed a peculiar black subordinating institution, it created another one, right? From slavery to Jim Crow to the iconic ghetto, right? They're all born of, of, of white supremacy and anti-blackness, right? Um, and I wanted to, 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 to show that continuum, but I also wanted a word that helped disrupt the negativity around blackness, right? The negativity particularly um, associated with people who live in high poverty, black neighborhoods. So it was a term of affection for me. It's also, it, it speaks to that history very powerfully, the use of the term. But I also think that uh, you're right that in your work in this book, but more generally, you've been very careful to point out the different kinds of oppression and inequality that different groups face. But, but I do think that what's powerful about this is that it does focus in on a particular kind of of race, this anti-blackness as perpetuated through different kinds of systems and mm-hmm. therefore resulting in residential geographical segregation. And that's just not true for other groups. And And I will say that I personally find the inability to distinguish between general forms of racism, if you like, and white supremacy and the specific nature of anti-blackness in the U.S., to be something of a problem sometimes when we talk about this. We've got to be able to think both those things at once because I don't think that the racism experienced by, say, Asian Americans or Hispanic Americans or indeed of even new, and you make this point, I think, of new African Americans of more recent arrivals is the same as the kind of racism that's experienced by black descendants. It's of a different order. You're like the first interviewer who gets this. (laughs) Yeah, but, you, but, but like, you don't want to say it's sort of if you say that it's almost like to somehow diminish the other right. kinds of race. And, but it's and not, I, right? I don't. And I say, you know, you you I, I say that ancient and present stories of oppression need to be told and retold. It's and I told tell the story of one strain of oppression that happens to ensnare everybody. So we understand it. Right. But I'm not denying it. And I'm not that other forms don't exist. What I'm also saying that um, when it comes to opportunity and your work speaks a lot powerfully to this and the hoarding of it, geography is is key. Right. Um, and, and so I think we, we need in, in, in post civil rights, in pre civil rights America, there was a caste system that was particularly in the South, which was based exclusively on race, exclusively on race. Um, and in post-civil rights America, you know, the, uh, some, one of the advances is that um, not everybody is ensnared um, in high poverty neighborhoods now. Um, there's, there's examples of stratospheric black success. I acknowledge that. But Uh, So I said we need more complicated language than just race and racism to explain the serious structural consequences of geography. So I said we have a caste system now that's at the intersection of where you live, um, 
your socioeconomic status and and race. It's it's intersectional, if I may say so, but but it's structural. Um, and anti-blackness, both in the past and present, right? Um, uh, both you know was central to both creating and maintaining it. Yes, uh, you have great figures in in the book. It's very empirically grounded. The book. It's one of the things I appreciate about it, and just make the point that the high the concentrated poverty neighborhoods which we'll get into is, are predominantly black and so this it's and and that's not a coincidence right it, it's not an accident that that these areas you're talking about so the yes it's because sure. actually that's not quite true let me let me make it clear uh, um if you look at and I'm sure Brookings has these numbers, right? If you look at concentrated poverty census tracts defined as uh, 40% or more of the people who live there are poor. Um, I don't, I, I, I can stop and get you the exact figures, but uh, I, a, a number of them are majority black. A number of them are mixed, heavily black and Hispanic. Um, and um, there is a small number, but rapidly growing, of majority white districts, right? So it's very important to understand that not all concentrated poverty districts are black, but there, but there's still quite a few iconic ones. And the, the problem is people associate concentrated poverty with blackness in the yes. in the and and that those negative stereotypes about people who live in the hood are, are the, the 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 signature difficulty we have in creating a politics for more inclusive um, policies. But I try very very hard to tell the truth um, about the systems set against people trapped in high poverty neighborhoods. But using the word the hood. The risk is that everybody thinks concentrated poverty is only black poverty, and it's not. Right. I mean, actually, you also make the good point that mm -hmm. the language changes, but the connotations remain the same. So you discuss how we went from ghetto to inner city. I think almost sometimes people can talk about urban. You, know, you can sort of use phrases like the urban poor. Right. So in, in some ways... I, I completely understand the, the struggle that that you, that you had. I think you I think you perfectly balance it, by the way. But because on the one hand, there is a sense of like if you talk about in this concentrated inner city poverty, right? Um, and by that, you you're allowing dog whistle. So in some ways, the very segregation that you identify makes dog whistling easier. And I think that you say that, in fact, in, in practice, right? So it, what it does, it allows people to use geographical constructs as a dog whistle to race, but only because it's true enough that there is this level of segregation. And you're trying to simultaneously point to the segregation, but also disrupt the narrative that that's just about race. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Um the social distinctions that come naturally to people become much more efficient when you overlay geography with it, right? And when, when you see distressed neighborhoods that are heavily black and brown, um, what people, people will see that distress and associate it with the people who live there. What they don't see is uh, nearly 80 years of systemic disinvestment from the marking of majority black neighborhoods as hazardous with a D rating in the thirties, you know, but it's so easy and cheap, right. To just, this is what Trump did, right. You notice in his rhetoric, democratic led cities with a lot of black people were, he always referred to them as infested. He did mm -hmm. constantly infested. You know, rat infested, violence infested, crime. You know, he was the most transparent participant in this. Um, I thought we were done with that, but you know, he he was closer to George Wallace than Richard Nixon in his dog whistling about black neighborhoods. Right now, all that law and order right. rhetoric came right from them. Right. I mean, it's with with Trump. Honestly, I think we got to the point where he almost put the dog whistle 
aside and just picked up the plain old normal whistle. One of the things I want to talk about is the way in which white spaces require the concentrated poverty spaces or, or the so, so I think uh, we've now had a very useful exchange yeah. about like a presu- what we're what we're presuming here, but I think we've now got permission to talk a little bit about the the hood, as you call it. Mm-hmm. And you say very strikingly, I think this is another a really important point here that's very often lost is that it's not just that these white spaces, the affluent upper middle class places that that you and I have both written about, it's not just that they're separate from those other predominantly poor areas and which are disproportionately black, but they need them. You actually say white space would not exist without the hood, and so there's there's a re- that's such an important kind of ca- causally linking the possibility of having these white spaces and low poverty areas which are predominantly white with those others. I think is a really important innovation because you're connecting them causally. You're saying these spaces are only possible because of those spaces. What? Why do you say that? How does that work? Well, um, this is what I mean by a caste system. Uh, It's not just that uh, people who are trapped in the hood are at the bottom of the social order. It's just you can go right on up to the the, the most persistent types of neighborhoods are uh, majority white and increasingly Asian, frankly, um, um, poverty free, high opportunity neighborhoods. Um, that have the best of everything, perhaps with the exception of traffic, but other than that, the best of everything on every dimension. And at the other extreme, um, high poverty neighborhoods that are systemically disinvested in and, and really social, it's getting increasingly harder to get into the high poverty neighborhood. And it's increasingly harder to get out of the iconic hood. Um, there was a recent study um, released by the Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley this summer, which said that uh, 81% of metro areas in the country, um, those above 200,000 people, are more segregated in 20 were more segregated in 2019 than they were in 1990. And let me say, um, to really put a point on the interconnection of uh, affluence and 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 dis- concentrated advantage and concentrated disadvantage you know exclusionary zoning right um we had the the supreme court and all of our local governments um policies and and our, our you know the federal government has basically sanctioned this order right um, sanctioned the idea that it's perfectly fine for suburbs, high opportunity places that have control of the zoning power to use that power to exclude any type of housing other than detached single family homes that cost a lot of money, right? That is a regime of exclusion, right? And, and it's actually worse than, than, than people imagine. Not only do people in high opportunity space get to exclude um, and not have their fair share of affordable housing and not have, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like saying their fair share of poor people. I don't like that, right? But, um, the, but I know what you mean. Right. But the people excluded from high opportunity spaces are subsidizing those places subsidizing their 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 golden infrastructure right with their gas taxes with their sales and income taxes right these places tend to vacuum up much more than their fair share of limited public and private resources from infrastructure and i tell some of those stories much of this is a story of political power even in even cities that are run by black mayors majority Black council members such as Baltimore, there's still the the power of the affluent suburbs or or the upper middle class areas and the business lobby and so on too, and that's that gets refracted through policy. And so, the residential caste system you describe then generates inequalities of political power, which makes it very difficult to like how, how I mean you say even with the best will in the world, it's just incredibly difficult to to un, unpack this caste system once it's in place, right? Great question. 
you just have such great questions. I can't thank you enough. Um, You've hit the nail on the head, right? And this is what I came to understand. This is why I called it a caste system, right? Residential segregation not only affects opportunity, it alters politics, right? What what have we done? Uh, The state has, what the state has done, you have communities of abundance in direct horizontal competition with communities of need for limited resources. Surprise, surprise, they tend to win over and over and over again, right? It's There's concentrated wealth, there's concentrated political influence, right? Um, so it alters power. And, and to underscore what I mean, you know, the whole caste idea, I say that there are three primary anti-Black policies that comprise the system of caste. And the first is boundary maintenance, which we've talked about, a phalanx of public policies. The federal government actually still invests in segregation, right? I show all of that. Then there's opportunity hoarding. Um, we've, and that's basically uh, the ways in which um, high opportunity places have the best of everything and are able to exclude others from participating in it and getting more than their fair share. Of, of public and private investment. And then the third, which we haven't touched on yet, um, but will be familiar to a lot of people, is stereotype-driven surveillance of Black bodies, right? Those three um, processes, which are not the past, they are today, persist. And But I'll say the beauty of once you understand it, and I take pains to show all of this, then you have clarity about what we do need to do to move forward. Reverse and yes. the processes. I think that's right. The, the way that these interlock, I think the kind of interlocking systems that you describe, mm-hmm. and you've obviously you've drawn, as I have in some of my work on Charles Tilley's uh, work here in Enduring Inequality, where you talked about those those three. And so we've talked about some of them about, uh, already, and we'll perhaps get to surveillance. But the way that they overlap is very often in education uh and, and i think about that the education system and the housing market kind of overlap and the way i talk about this sometimes is like if you're imagine a world where you could segregate yourself away as an affluent person into neighborhoods and then you could you could organize your schools on the basis of geography so that that meant that you're you inside a certain attendance zone catchment area so your kids go to that great school um, it's relatively low poverty, relatively low crime, etc. The only thing that could go wrong is if you if you couldn't control the boundary. Oh, great zoning! So I've got zoning to do that. And then the only thing that would make it even better is if I could get a massive mortgage interest deduction to allow me to spend even more money on this big single family home. And so, so the way that the tax system, you know, the, the federal tax system interlocks with the local zoning system, and then you get it plays out through schools. And I want to talk a bit about schools. You spend a lot of time on this issue of how educational segregation mirrors and amplifies you know, residential segre- segregation, which is almost inevitable in a system where you've got this, these uh, attendance zone systems. And then you get this, I love this idea of horizontal competition for resources, and you get that mm-hmm. mostly in schools. So is, you've talked a lot about housing already, but it isn't, doesn't the rubber really hit the road when it comes to the way that space and place impact educational opportunity because we have this geographically designed system. Right. So uh, education is one of the few possibilities for a person through their own individual effort getting out of a low opportunity place, right? But the systems are set against us because what do we do? In, in, in the United States of America, unlike our competitors, of OECD nations, uh, our competitors of OECD nations, um, I cite a study about this, they put extra resources and their most talented teachers in disadvantaged places. In the United States, we do the opposite. Um, We put more resources and the most experienced and best of everything in high opportunity settings. And, you know, to put, put some figures on it, um, I cite a study which shows that every year um, we spend about 23 billion more 
in majority white school districts um, than in other school districts with the same numbers of children. That's $23 billion more. Um, And, you know, it's not rocket science. Uh, Children in high poverty, disadvantaged schools, some people call them apartheid schools, um, success is aberrational, right? Um, And, you know, so either you're going to desegregate your schools, which is unbelievable resistance to that, or you're going to um, put extra resources in concentrated poverty schools. There's some studies that show that if you can reduce class size such that the ratio of child to teacher is something like four children to every adult, you can actually achieve some excellence. But the politics is completely set against doing that. So, um yeah, you saw it in Charlotte, you saw it in Seattle, you see it, you see it everywhere. There's actually this great New York Times podcast, you probably know it, Nice Nice White Parents. Which <laughs> I haven't heard about it. <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite a listen, um, and it was painful listening for a lot of white liberals in particular, I think, right, um, right, right. Who, who, who have the right views and the right signs in their yards, but uh, when it comes to school integration, don't necessarily show up in, in, in quite the same way. But you... You do have this quite interesting example of Louisville um, where they actually, I think, by desegregating the school, I shouldn't, that's too strong, by making the schools more integrated, by detaching it from geography, actually the reduced residential segregation. And that's really interesting because I think most people think, oh, look, because we'll have to do housing desegregation, resident, residential desegregation, in order to desegregate our neighborhood-based schools. And that feels intuitive. But they... They did the opposite virtually, right? Is that, yeah. and you were quite positive about their experience. Right. And I wanted to give some positive examples so people didn't feel hopeless, like there was nothing we could do, mm. which is not true. Um, and, and so I tell the hopeful story of I, I, my best friend in college was from Louisville. I had to learn to say Louisville. Louisville. Of Louisville. Okay. Louisville. <laughs> Louisville. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, Louisville, it, it's it's despite the the story of Brianna Taylor and their struggle with, mm. with to make their policing more humane, it is a positive example. What they did was first they they were forced to desegregate um, under uh, federal court orders. Right, this is what the federal courts used to do. Um, straight through to the 80s. It's, it started um, in the 90s, federal courts retreating and, and, and letting school districts out from under uh, desegregation orders. But because um, white parents had experienced success and actually started to, as the schools desegregated, People found that they could um, confidently buy, you know, cheaper homes in different places because um, the, the, the plan had enabled you to get into a good school, a decent school. And most of them were all good. Um, none were overwhelmed by poverty. So then you, that decoupled the school from where you lived. Then you had more housing options. And so over time the area, it went from being a hyper-segregated metropolitan area to just a moderately segregated one. And, you know, I think with uh, each new generation of of Americans, of of people, is more diverse than the next one. Um, And I I write about this phrase, cultural dexterity, right? The swath of culture. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Define, I, I was going to get to that. So let's define define that term, and uh, and then how, and how do we get more of it? What is it, and how do we get more of it? All right, I coined the term in my previous book, Loving, which was about interracial marriage and interracial intimacy of all kinds, right? But a culturally dexterous person can enter bewildering diversity, and at least rather than having the fright and flight response, like I got to run, I can't take this. Um, as more of a response, like, you know, I can, I, I, I can handle this or I'm willing to try. Right. And, um, 
younger generations, particularly of whites, I see it in my students, I see it in my children's friends, they grow up with diversity. They expect diversity to be the norm, and they're more comfortable than older whites with the loss of centrality of whiteness, you know, uh, the loss of political and cultural dominance of whiteness. So that's what I mean by culture. A culturally dexterous person is comfortable with robust pluralism and a lot of different types of people and perhaps different ways of thinking about it. Um, and, and the hope I have is that particularly in cities, um, the people who are drawn to cities, um, they, 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 they either like diversity or they have built up some muscle for dealing with it and, and understand that they have to deal with it. Right. Um, so I think that there's increasing pos- possibilities for a functioning multiracial politics that prioritizes racial equity. That can look at this past and say, you know, this isn't right. These neighborhoods have been historically defunded. Yes, we need some racial equity. Yes, we need to reallocate some funds and start investing in and and seeing the folks in these neighborhoods as assets, worthy yes, but of a it, citizen, right? It's, mm. It does require these these virtuous circles that you describe, I think, and and to, to create a new equilibrium. So one of the things that creates cultural dexterity is spending more time with right. more diverse right. people. But in order to get that, we have to desegregate our institutions and our neighborhoods. Once you do that, then you might create a new equilibrium. I was interested in like the Louisville example. So we think about new policy equilibriums or market equilibriums, uh, but you're talking about a new political equilibrium as well and yeah. your understanding of the problem you have to and this comes back to my childhood right you know you can harness this changing demographics through organization you can't you can't just sit and wait for the future to come because all that will happen is you'll just get more of the same you get to a point where to be the person opposing the integrated housing plan or the integrated school plan is to really put yourself on the wrong side of the dinner party, right? Because it's got to become like it's got to become socially unpleasant to be defending exclusionary zoning or the school integration program. And people dress it up in all kinds of stuff about the environment or what you know. There's all there's a number of bullshit code words that are used, <laughs> uh, as you know as well as I do. Um, so I think shifting the norm about what's permissible what's socially permissible and, and what isn't. And, and, I, and I do have some reason to be hopeful about that. But I, I want to drill down just one, one more time. I have to interrupt you on that. Sure, go for it. Because I'm the agitator story. That's your project. You know, I'm more about gathering multiracial power to run for office, right, to gain political control over whatever the institution is that's the decider, whether it's the school board or the zoning board or the city council or the mayor. And one thing we saw after poor George Floyd's slow execution is a lot of people running for office saying, I'm for racial equity. I'm for humanizing the peace, you know, and, and so it's not enough to hold your sign up in a yard or make people feel uncomfortable at dinner parties. I'm saying the people who want something different have to mobilize, organize, run, and, and, and demand something different, not just wait for people to evolve. I agree. I think that that's a good division of labor is you have to mobilize the power one way, but I'm going to keep working on trying to lower the barriers represented by white hypocrisy. Very good. I love your they, project. <laughs> they are they are for, formidable in, indeed. But one of the things I wanted to talk about a bit, and you talk about your own personal experience of this, is being in a city like D.C., mm-hmm where you've obviously got wide diversity of different kinds of school mm-hmm. uh, and, and outcomes from those schools as well. And you talk, you've talk, you experienced yourself the dilemma that parents face in cities like that, and, and which leads some of them to flee, actually. So what you, what you said earlier about younger people living in cities being more culturally dexterous and so on, I think that's true. But what's also interesting to me is the studies that show that racial, racial segregation changes shape when people have kids. 
So when people, before they have kids, living in much more integrated neighborhoods, in fact, very often wanting to live in more integrated neighborhoods, but then the kids arrive and you just wait for a few years and that, you know, I'm Bethesda, Maryland, that that northward shuffle from, from deep, right? So people, there's fly out to the better schools or there are alternatives. And you talk about the fact that you literally won the lottery uh in the dc system and so i'd love you to talk reflect a bit on your own experience and how that makes you think about education reform generally with the sort of i guess this the the sharp thing to add is that you've now got organizations like the naacp who are against charter schools just in principle and against school choice um but it seems to me that in many cases charters and choice and lottery have been the one thing that has very often broken up these patterns of advantage you see in cities so where do you come out of all of that Oh, what a hard question. So I had a black mom say to me years ago, parenthood makes you ruthless, you know, and, 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 but I'll, I'll say this in my own, uh, I, I wrote a chapter in a previous, my first book called the black middle-class dilemma. You know, where do you, what do you do if you're a family like mine, we have six degrees between both of the adults in the family, you know, we have good income, right? Where do you choose to live? Um, and what my husband and I did was we've lived in two neighborhoods now in the district, both of which have historic patterns of blacks and Jews living together. We did the best we could. We felt for our family with twin black sons was to live in neighborhoods with, you know, culturally dexterous white people that we, we don't think would ever call the police on our sons, even though we can afford to move to high opportunity, higher opportunity white space, we didn't want that for our family. So that's one choice we made and continue to make. The other thing we did, and I, I'll admit it, right? Um, we did participate in charter schools, right? We did bypass our neighborhood elementary school, which was good. Um, when we won the lottery, literally, and got into an unbelievable, multiracial, well-resourced, international baccalaureate, Mandarin immersion school. Um, it was fantastic. No one group was dominant. Um, and I now I have these black Chinese speaking kids, right? Um, and, and, you know, why did I do that? Because that option was made available to you, but I was prepared. I, I If we didn't win that lottery, we decided we're going to go to our neighborhood school. We were going to give it the college try, but we got in and, 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 and it was fabulous. Right. And well, I'll say, you know, I see people of all colors coming into this city, you, you know, and the poor, my students come out of law school with $200,000 of debt. Right. You know, and what what does D.C. have that a lot of places don't have pre-K three. Pre-K three, a lot of pre-K three thoughts and universal pre-K four. Right. That gets a lot of people's attention and a lot of, uh, and more whites than you might think are saying are, are, you know, staying in the city and participating. Now, here's the dilemma about charter schools. And you're, and you're right. OK. If you didn't have a charter school system, then D.C. public schools could compete better by having all of the schools be as fabulous as as the one I got into. And yes, a lot of whites and affluent families like mine that can negotiate that lottery and go to all those open houses, you know, don't have to take off time to work to do it go to these charter schools. Right. So I did it. So that says you did. You did get lucky. But I guess you you don't think you should have to get lucky to get that educational right. choice. You sort of, to some extent, you're, you're I mean, I, it was interesting. It was very interesting listening to you because when you said we had decided that if we didn't get, win the lottery. We were going to go to the neighborhood school. Local school. And, and I honestly wondered if you were going to say what I think most people in your economic position would have said, which is we were going to go private. No. So no. there are a lot of people who just, that's the, that's the other option is you play the lottery. If you win, great. You get a, good education for free. And if you don't, you've got this backup plan, no, which is we, okay. We, we were going to go to our neighborhood school, which was a good school. You know, 
um, in the rankings or whatever. Sure, it wasn't like the best, but it was good. And, and what we found is if you pay attention, a lot of the elementary level schools at these fancy, unridic- ridiculously expensive schools are no better than a public oh, sure. school. Oh, sure. Sure, sure. I, I, think, I think for a lot of people, the rubber hits the road when um, when you get to high school. But I do also think that even for someone as committed you know, as, as you are, there there's a limit to how far we should expect people to treat their own children as social policy interventions, right? I mean, you are a parent as we're parents as well. Um, and I think that it's perfectly okay for us to strike different balances. I think the key thing is to recognize the dilemma and to confront it honestly. Well, let, let me say this. My husband and I will be able to retire a lot sooner because we had our kids in public school for seven years, right? Um, we're, we're actually doing pretty good, right? Um, as opposed to spending nearly $80,000 of after-tax dollars for every year for school. It's ridiculous, right? The other thing I'm going to say is I end the book advocating for uh, Black neighborhoods and Black schools, you know, Descend, where descendants are concentrated, that they deserve to be first in line for more public resources, right? I prioritize investment, you know, um, they should be getting more money because people have given up on, on segregation. So I'm more, my kids are going to be fine. They're going to be just fine. I'm not obsessed about it. But, you know, they're going to be fine. And I was like, there's always more house, Right. And Fisk, and there's these fabulous institutes. They're going to be fine. These kids have the best life imaginable. They've been all over the world. You know, I wish I had their childhood. But uh, descendant children, people, uh, all children trapped in uh, high poverty, under resourced schools are not going to be fine. And it is immoral. So I'm advocating for them. You're trying to change, change the, uh, not just rebalance the flow of public funds, but to inverse them so invoking the matthew principle that you know the least shall be first and you I said quote it. The, the least should be first the last should be first because we have um made them last and treated them last for decades and it's immoral it's immoral if you spend time i i have an entire chapter which shines a light on and you know what it means to be a descendant living in the hood. You have to be superhuman to under, overcome all the structural advantage, disadvantages from, you know, health, right, um, to heat, to violence, to uh, crappy schools, to police living in occupied territory. And, you know, the kinds of disadvantages that affluent parents wipe away what fluent parents spend money to wipe away every conceivable disadvantage that their child might face and sometimes cheat to put their child where they don't deserve to be right oh sure i mean honestly they always cheat it's just a question of whether we cheat uh legally or illegally but the whole system is is engineered to to cheat in one way or another i should say we i mean we we, this has been implicit in everything we've we've talked about and in most of your work but what you just said is a reminder that place matters mm-hmm. in and of itself, that neighborhood effects are real, which is why concentrated poverty is a problem over and above just the fact that there's lots of poor people. It has these other effects. Right? It has right. other effects on the neighborhood environment, which predict how well you're going to do in life. So I think that's just kind of worth drawing that out because that's – I think it's actually a central part of your argument, right? right. Because it's not just, it's, it's not just poverty that's the problem. It's – it's the fact that you concentrate the poverty in certain areas. Concentrated poverty. And this is Raj Chetty's work, right? You know, um, there's very little social mobility um, in high poverty settings. But, you know, a lot of places are different. And the, and the places at the top of Chetty's rankings for places where there's social mobility for poor children, they tend to be more integrated they have they they allow poor people to live among the middle class there's a ethos of of support for public institutions and public schools um and and the outcomes 
for children are dramatically different. And the economies of those places are much better than highly fragmented, segregated places. So, Correct. Yeah, they're, they're, they're less segregated. There is one other uh, correlation, at least, in, in those Chetty rankings, though, that is a chance for me to push you on one point, which is family. So one of the strongest, in fact, the strongest correlation is with percentage of single parents in a particular area mm-hmm. and upward mobility. And you, you're at great pains in, at various points to to correctly highlight the way in which pointing to things like family or the role of fathers. You actually have a good ding at Barack Obama for his 2008 speech on fathers talking about absent fathers. But um, but actually the Chetty work shows that having lots of fathers around helps as well, it, independent of whether they're your father. So I, I actually think there is a, f- a father effect there. I agree that, that's the, that that can be a danger. I honestly think that on the other side of the aisle now, though, more I think about people on the left, is that there's there's a a real unwillingness to even talk about these issues for fear of being seen as on the, being on the wrong side of the debate. And actually, you can't like the fact that family stability is just is important, and it is differently important for different people, and it's affected by all kinds of things. Like that's, I think on on the on the right, that's maybe that's all the right say, but on the left now, it's it's actually I think getting quite difficult to think both of those thoughts at the same okay. time. So so I. Um spend a lot of time engaging with these issues, right? And what I say is that um, we have all these myths. We have ghetto mythology, which is part of the politics of, of that, that fuels punitive strategies, right? Punitive approaches to high poverty areas. Um, but, you know, you wouldn't know from all these um, um, myths that black fathers when they have access to their children um, are the most spend more time with their children than any other fathers. Right. And, and again, there are structural explanations, right. You know, when you put nearly a million black men behind bars, right. Or, or the, um, the, the economy, right. All of the good paying, Jobs for low-skilled people just disappeared, right? And so it's hard to be a breadwinner, raise a family when you can't get, you know, family living wage work. So I'm not excusing bad individual behavior, um, I, and I talk about it, but it's just that myths far outweigh the realities, you know, and the state has made things worse, Right. With all of these punitive approaches that cost a lot of money, there's so many people, and I have relatives I can think of, that want to be fathers, right? Want to be, you know, but so many of the systems are set against them um, that make it very difficult for them to be fathers economically, right? Um I completely agree yeah. with you. I think the danger that the the danger of focusing on, and I'm not even trying to focus on individual individual behaviors. Mm-hmm. I'm merely trying to make the case that social structures, including you know, family, m- matter, and for that to be for no. that to be allowed into the conversation, yeah. acknowledged without that immediately meaning it, not that you start using that as a reason not to focus on structural factors. For me, the opposite is the case. Mm-hmm. It is precisely because we know the ways in which structures. The economy, the the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. the employment, you know, employment, transportation, which you talk a lot about, being able to actually physically get to a job, child support system, etc. All of those systems, how they structure social relations like families and mm-hmm. fatherhood, it, make, it makes those things more important, not less, right. <laughs> uh, to understand the connection between the two. Whereas I think sometimes it's framed in a way which is like you got to pick a side. And depending on which side you're on, you've got to focus on one side or the other. And I think that gets in the way of a better debate. I'm not accusing you of this, to be clear, but right. but I just I, I do think that sometimes when I read you saying, you know, no one wants to talk about stru- people use the individualization as an excuse to ignore right. the structural problems. I, I think that's true in some some spheres, but not in the spheres at least that I move in. Well, I, I just want to emphasize to you. And to your readers that um, why should we be surprised if people have lived in a a systemically deprived situation that some people succumb 
that some people become dysfunctional, that some people don't survive it, right? Why should we be surprised at that, right? You know, I, I, I this is, um, I think, Samuelson's work in The Great American City. He talks about that, right? That uh, that's not surprising, right? No, and, and, it would be and, surpri- all, the, all the other way around. Right? right, and I'll say that what what I try to bring home in the book is that in uh, majority black neighborhoods, even middle class ones, um, what they have endured is cumulative trauma from intentional anti-black policies, right? That other neighborhoods um, have not endured, right? And we should not be surprised that some people succumb, right? Um, we shall have overcome when uh, a person doesn't have to be superhuman to leap over those structures. The society celebrates the people who get out. You know, they can just be human and treated as exactly. Uh, and then, and then those exceptional people are used as a, right. a, a a way to justify not not investing in everybody else because they prove that it's possible. Right. But they are, and I think I mean it happens on on all sides. I think, and what what that leads me to actually the last the last thing I wanted to talk about. I realize we haven't we haven't covered everybody. I right. recommend I strongly recommend this book and all your other and all your other work. And just you you know, in case I forget at the end, dude, <laughs> that you strongly so, recommend reading it. <laughs> We're just getting started, but the book is called White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality. I want to finish on love. Mm-hmm. This is something you've written about before, and I thought your last book, Loving, was a beautiful book, and we've talked about that you know, offline before. And, and you finish this book, like you quote bell hooks, and you talk about the importance of love and why it matters in how we think about these issues around public policy. And it's such a moving and surprising way in some ways to finish a book that has lots of hope. And we haven't talked about all of the, there's lots of stories of hope in the book too, which I think is great, but also lots of maps and figures and it's empirical, it's personal, but why is love important? And what does that mean? So and that's my final chapter entitled abolition and repair and I cite bell hooks and other, um, frankly, radical black thinkers. But what my argument is that the, the, the biggest barrier to transformation, abolition and repair, in my view, is changing the lens in which people see descendants from one of presumed thug to presumed citizen. It's like, from going to a, a punitive, fearful, stereotyping vision to one that's sort of like Dr. King's agape love. Yes, you're a citizen too. I, 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 I welcome you and I love you in an agape sense, right? I see you as an asset. I see you as a three-dimensional human being worthy of inclusion. And, and, and not just worthy of inclusion, but capable of charting your own course to prosperity if you're given a chance, right? Um, and, and, and also the other thing, what do you get when you apply a lens of love? You're also learning to apply it to yourself, right? And, and to experience the joy of being part of a movement that, that lives up to our professed ideals, that lives up to what you claim you want when you put the sign in your yard, right? Um, you gain so much more if you can put aside all that nasty, toxic stuff that, you know, politicians and everyone else have put out there, you know, and enter into a community premised on agape love. I want to be a part of this. I want to experience it myself. I want to spread it for, to others. Well, Maybe in the end, there is nothing more radical than, than love itself. <laughs> so, well, that will thank you so much for joining me, Cheryl Cushing. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.